We are, con we are continuing our study in the book of Luke. So if you will turn with me to Luke chapter 10, we will read verses 1 through 24. Luke 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day for Sodom than for that town. <clears throat> Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. To chooses to reveal him. 
Then, returning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, or to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. Appreciate that reading. Um, you might have noticed, if you don't have a Bible, we have some pew Bibles, nice brand new ESV uh, Bibles that are under a lot of the chairs. We don't quite have the nice things in the back of the chair, maybe someday, but they're under the chairs, and we've got some in the back by the doors. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you're here today, you can take one of these as our gift to you today as well. Um, so I want to let you know about that. ESV pew Bibles, good-sized print and everything, so those are there. Uh, we value the word that much that we want to have it in our pews, even in copies just around just around copies, extra copies just shows that we take this thing seriously here at Bethany Church. Um, but I, want, I hadn't mentioned them yet, and I thought I would just for a moment. Well, last week we saw Jesus was wanting to spread out the message. Do you remember? We're kind of in this second section of Luke. He wanted to spread out the message of the kingdom of God as he sent disciples into that Samaritan village. Do you remember if you were here last week or watched online? And that mission he did afforded the opportunity for Jesus to address the attitudes of of racial superiority that the Samaritans had and some of the Jews had. It afforded Jesus the opportunity to discuss the cost of following him, if you remember. Uh, We won't be a people who get revenge if we're rejected, we talked about last week. We might have to give up material wealth reputation and family and friends for the sake of the kingdom mission at different forks in the road we talked about last Sunday. The king has come, Jesus said, and his subjects will be asked to do hard things for him. Well, this week we talk about what many Christians feel is maybe the hardest thing Jesus has asked us to do. You know what that is? Evangelize. Speak up for Jesus. I found a survey done by Jesus Film Project. Many of you have heard about it. Um, they did, a, a, I think, three years ago, so pretty recent. They interviewed over 1,600 multi-generational now, different ages, Christians, and asked them, what prevents you from sharing your faith? And they got a bunch of different answers, but there were some common themes, obviously, as some of the percentages on the far left are up in the 20s. The number one reason was fear. Fear was the number one reason. The second one was just lack of opportunity. Lack of opportunity, which maybe was, is driven by fear. I'm afraid of people who aren't like me. As we saw last week with the Samaritans and the Jews, there was this obvious fear of people different from us. That was number two still today. Um, lack of opportunity. Uh, that goes, goes down to, um, somebody said nothing. Some people so that's good. Um, uh, unequipped, lack of interest, rejection. We talked about that last week when you're rejected. So that's up there. Uh, all the way down to busy and uh, might be seen as too pushy. It's hard to bring up. A lot of them are similar too. You see how there, it is definitely something we struggle with. The call to evangelism can scare us when we think of having to speak out loud for Jesus. That's a big deal. And if you're a follower of Jesus, though, more than likely you know the call to share his message is for everyone. 
it's for all of us. So this message hits all of us today who call themselves a Jesus follower. It's not just for a select few, not just for the varsity team, right? Or the, the, the ones that are gifted with evangelism, which is a spiritual gift. I think there's some people that uniquely are drawn to it, but it is for everyone. We talked about that a while back. Do you remember that when we said, this is before I went on sabbatical, that Jesus loves to use people who feel like they're unqualified. And he loves to use people who uh, don't feel like they quite have the gifts to do what he wants them to do and, and, and he, because he gets the glory and it shows his power. And if we wait till we feel like we're qualified and ready, we will wait till the grave. If we wait to speak his name until we feel we're ready, we'll wait to the very end or, too, or until it's too late for some. So this is for everyone today. And it addresses a real problem, a real thing we have. So my hope today as we address the clear crisis and shortfall of evangelism, that we'll grow a little today. You'll be challenged a little today to speak out a little more. Because if we look together, we're going to look today at the way Jesus lays out for evangelism and the heart behind it, those are our two topics today, the way and the heart behind it, if we look at it together, we're going to be encouraged as we find out that here's, here's the great truth. The power for evangelism comes from him, the message is his, and the entire program is underneath his sovereign control. That's good news for people who might be afraid to evangelize. So we're going to be encouraged today. Um, so grab your outline. Hopefully you got your scripture open. We're going to look at the way in the first half of the passage, and the heart behind evangelism in the second half of the passage. So let's first look at the way of evangelism that Jesus lays out to his disciples here in chapter 10. As I said, the passage is broken into two sections, the way, and in the way we're going to look at some really practical calls uh, to action, practical steps that Jesus says to take if you want to evangelize. And then the heart behind evangelism, we're going to look at what, what type of person evangelizes? What type of person? What, what is a person like who evangelizes? Um, so as we said, as Jesus began, we saw this. He sent out 72 different disciples now. This isn't the 12, but 72 others, the text said. He sent them out in pairs. So they went two by two. Not like Noah's animals, a little different. They weren't going out. No animals were coming in. They're going out in two by twos to share the kingdom message, to share that kingdom message. And as Jesus sends them out in two by two, I think he's got a reason for doing that. He's showing us and them in that time that there's an accountability, a sense of sharing responsibility as the two went, not just one, and a wisdom and actually in a protection of integrity as they go out in pairs or think there must be two witnesses from the Old Testament for something to be said, two go out together. They go out in pairs Right off the bat, we see there's no concept here in Christianity for a lone ranger disciple. There's no concept of that in the church or living your faith on your own or going out on a mission without uh, some connection to the local body, other Christians. It's just not a thing in the New Testament. We always work together through the local church and disciples. It's the way Jesus started his ministry. The mission is stronger it's safer and it's wiser when we cooperate together. And Jesus teaches that right off the bat just by sending them out in twos. And as they go, he gives them a specific, um, not a real, actually not a specific, he gives them a general 
a general description or instructions of what to do. They're to go and prepare the way for the work Jesus would come and do after them. He's going to say, like, this is the way we go. That you go to prepare, and I'll come do a work. Ultimately knowing that this is a work of Jesus. He uses us to, sometimes we say, plant seeds. Thinking back to the scattering of the seeds parable. We plant seeds and others water, but God brings the growth, Scripture says. But he uses us. So as we go, or rather the, the Scripture actually says going. It's like a present some of you that loved grammar in English, the present active indicative. It's like indicative, you must do this, and it's active, so going is really what it says. Much like the Great Commission does at the end of Matthew. As you're going your way, I'm sending you out as you go. As we go, you're going. And as they go, he gives them some ongoing, they're also active, action items there to take up. So let's look at them. There's four of them to be challenged by them this morning. Here's our first one. As you go, be praying earnestly. So going, praying earnestly, ongoing action. After you fill that in, look down at verse two with me. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a problem there. So he says, here's an answer. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in to his harvest. We shouldn't be surprised by this action item from Jesus. But I dare not ask, myself included, how infrequently we pray for the lost or pray by name for the lost or how infrequently we pray for the Lord to raise up workers for the harvest. Think about it. Jesus had to say it to his disciples now. So these are the ones who lived day in and day out with him. They watched his own pattern of earnest prayer. Weren't they always saying, like, where's Jesus? Where is he? Ah, he's up praying. He's up on the hill praying. He's, where is he? He's up on the hill praying. Like, man, this guy prays a lot. They watched him do that. And he still has to say to them, you need to pray earnestly. So if they needed it and they were the eyewitness accounts of this man, Jesus, God in flesh, we still need it. We still need to be encouraged. Pray earnestly. What does it mean earnestly? It means like a urgency. It is an urgent message, isn't it? It's life and death and eternity, heaven and hell and salvation and sin and forgiveness and grace and judgment. It's all those are so big. It's urgent, but it's more than an urgency. It's a pleading. It's almost a begging. Jesus is saying almost beg that God would raise up people to speak. I mean, when was the last time I begged for that. Pled with Jesus. Raise up evangelists. Jesus does this. He tells us the problem right here. He says, there's too many pe few people speaking about me. And he gives us a real quick solution. You saw it in the text. Therefore, that's a key word. And the, so the first solution, it's not a training program for evangelism. Although those, there's value in those. The first solution is he says, pray pray. He commands his disciples to pray. What would Jesus say of a church that doesn't pray after we hear these words? What would he say of a Christian who doesn't pray? And as we see here with Jesus, he tells them to pray and then he sends them out. And so who's the answer to their prayers? They are. <laughs> 
They pray for workers to be sent out, and they're the answers to their own prayer. It's kind of a little humorous there, and it should be the same with us. When we pray that, we're not just praying for God, well, that's someone else's job. Please send someone else. Not me, Lord. I mean, that's Jonah, right? Somebody else but me, Lord. I don't want to be the one who takes the message to them. Someone else, Lord. Who is the answer to that prayer for Jonah? Ah, Jonah. I mean, Jesus even, if you think about it, in some ways was like, is there another way, Lord? No, you are the answer. (laughs) We're the answer to that prayer. As we pray for workers for the harvest, yes, we pray for others too. It is that. But we too are the answer. Lord, send me out. Lord, equip me to go out wherever that is in my life. Give me the message of the kingdom to share. If you believe it, you've got it. And you've got it to share. This is really important. So hear this part. Hear this. Spiritual growth, evangelism, sharing the kingdom, loving deeds, revival, conversions, they do not happen apart from prayer. They just don't. They do not happen apart from prayer. Jesus is saying there's a problem here. Pray. The late Tim Keller, who you know I've quoted over the years and read much of his books and some of our men's group have, he spent a lot of time in his lifetime studying revivals of America. And he was actually part of one in the 90s at the turn of the millennium. He was part of a massive revival in Manhattan. They told him, you're a fool. You're a fool to go plant a church in Manhattan in the 90s. What are you thinking? And he went there as this fairly, you know, a little stuffy kind of, you know, uh, preacher that was fairly intellectual and went there and, man, they saw an explosion of Christians. So much so that it began to impact the city and now there's thousands of churches planted around the world through some of that early work in Manhattan. I'm really glad he didn't take the advice of his critics, aren't you? <laughs> we spent a lot of time studying revivals and, and the two great awakenings they're called that took place in the, in the United States. And as he studied them, he saw and he always pointed to prayer as the catalyst for what a revival is. What is a revival? A revival is really uh, the, the normal work of the Holy Spirit, working through the word, prayer, the sacraments, people sharing faith, repentance and faith and prayer, but it's an intensification of that normal work. It's intensification. Here's what he said about, as he thought about revival and preaching and prayer in an article called Lord Do It Again. He said, I do think there's a way of preaching the gospel that brings conviction. So preaching matters. Sharing matters, your faith. Preaching to the heart. Preaching Christ. Preaching grace, which we're going to do today. He said, I believe in that. But there are some churches that have spent five to six years working on extraordinary prayer. That's the main thing they've done. And they've seen fruit in people's lives. Revival's like an avalanche, he said. You get a few sleepy Christians waking up. You get a few nominal Christians getting converted for the first time, actually, and a few really interesting dramatic conversions from the community. And if there's a support of extraordinary prayer, those first little pebbles can turn into an avalanche. I love that little, that image of of pebbles becoming an avalanche, not because there was harder work, not because there was a better program, not because there was a flashier stage production, but because there was a tiny group of people behind it going, Lord, more. Praying for it. That's incredible. That means you don't have to be the biggest, the brightest, and the best to see God work. You just have to be a prayer. Someone who prays. Pebbles can turn into an avalanche. Small little work with prayer, it means, can accomplish incredible things with the Lord. 
I think of Jesus praying over five loaves and two fish and the multiplication power that was available as the Spirit worked amongst the people there. I mean, what would happen if over the next five or six years, our church and other churches in Canby and churches all over the states prayed specifically, specifically, Lord, raise up workers, raise up evangelists. And if I'm one of those, send me wherever it is. Or if that was even hard for you to pray, as we're going to do in our growth groups this week, I know it's hard to pray out loud, isn't it? And some of us struggle to pray out loud. What if when that time came in your growth group this week, a couple of you just took that verse and said, Lord, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, send out laborers into the harvest. And what if you just started your day with that or ended it with that verse? You weren't sure how to pray. You could always pray Jesus' words. There's plenty of worse things you could do, right? Do you know there's a group of four or five that meet every Sunday over the last couple months that have been meeting out by the couches out there? What are they doing? Maybe you've seen them week after week. They're out there praying. What an opportunity if you came, I think they do 10 to 10, 15. It's simple. Just come to the couches. And what if that little group prayed over the next few years? One of the primary prayers was, Lord, raise up workers. Or the first Sunday of the month in room two back here, um, 9.30 to 10.15, for just 45 minutes, there's a time to pray Every Sunday, Bob Yoder, one of our elders, has primarily led that. What if you joined them? I think we've maybe only had maybe six or seven before is the most. What if there were 20? What if there were 30? What if there were 50 of us praying every Sunday morning, Lord, raise up workers? Amen. You know, let's take a minute. We're all here, right? If you don't know what to pray, you could look at verse 2. Let's take a moment and silently pray for that. Can we do that? Take a minute. Just pray that. Why do we pray? Well, the driving power is the Lord himself. The message is his. The whole program is under control, his control, and responsibility for sending out the workers. So what's our part? We pray. Here's our second action item. We go humbly with the word. We go humbly. What I want us to see in verses 3 and 4, and I think it's what Luke wants us to see, is that Jesus is sending out his people as lambs in the midst of wolves, Jesus says. It means there's danger. Wolves snarl, don't they? They bare their teeth, they travel in packs, and they surround their prey and tear them to bits. Sounds fun. Sign me up. Let's go. He's realistic, though. And as he talks about the realistic context of sharing the gospel, he tells them, travel light. So nothing hinders the message. Don't stop on the road for long greetings. I know that those can sometimes turn into hours and a meal at someone's house and so in their culture. So just, you know, don't do that. There's, there's an urgency to the message. Don't pause. Stay at the same house, verse 7 says, so you, you don't appear to be like mooching off of the people for the gospel, house to house. and Stay at one place, he says. Because he will provide for them, as verse 7 says, the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus is telling, I will provide for you, but it's dangerous. There's a lot of talk, and rightfully so, about increasing danger for Christians in the West today, or um, persecution, even use that word, or uh, at the very least, uh, a prejudice maybe. 
whether it's losing a job for holding to a biblical sex ethic, which has happened in places, or going on trial as a uh, Finnish in Finland, Christian in their parliament has been on trial the last few years for tweeting a Bible verse and, and possibly facing six years in jail for it. That's, that's different in the West than it's been in the past. Or the attitude of calling the Bible hate speech, that's becoming a little more common. Or think of the recent topics parents and school boards have been battling over, like what's the role of the family uh, in family life. Those are all some biblical ideas. So it's true. There is a reality that there are more clear wolves in our culture. It's true. We want to be honest, and Jesus is honest with his disciples as he sends them out. But here's the point. It's nothing new for God's people. So Jesus isn't surprised by it. This is nothing new for God's people. Jesus told his first disciples the same thing. And in fact, most disciples of all generations actually have lived clearly amongst wolves. Most generations of all disciples over almost all of history, we just happen, thank the Lord, we just happen to have lived in a place in a unique window of history in the last hundred years in America. We just happen to. But most Christians through most of history and most of the world haven't had the life we've had the last 100, 150 years. And it might be true that that window might be closing, but that means we cannot close our doorway out of the church to the surrounding culture with the gospel. It doesn't give us that excuse because it was the same and maybe probably worse for the Christians in Jesus' day. He's saying in these verses, you must humbly rely on me because I know it's hard. He knows. He's compassionate. I know it's dangerous. It's almost like going amongst wolves, like a lamb even. But you can trust me. I'll provide food, place to stay, the power and the authority. Trust me as you go, he's saying to them. We go humbly. Providing, excuse me, relying on his provision and safety. At the very least, across the street to our neighbor. Or at the very least, across the hallway to our kids and our grandkids, right, with the message. That's a mission field too. We go humbly. Here's the third one. We go seeking peace. So prayerfully, humbly, seeking peace. It's our third action item. When we as God's people come into a place, a relationship, a workplace, a house, a neighborhood, a new church, a classroom for you students here today, a campus for you students here today, we are to be people going, seeking peace, bringing peace with us, he says. We serve the God. Do you know the Hebrew word shalom? It's a word meaning peace, and it's a rich word of peace. Not just a salvation with God, which it is that, but a peace and a fruitfulness and a, and a, 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 a wonderful time of peace on earth on, between people and relationships. A flourishing, that's the word I was looking for. A flourishing on the, word, on the world. And Jesus is the prince of peace, we know that, who not only restores peace between God and man, but he's restoring a a kingdom, a kingdom world where a hole has been torn in the fabric of humanity and cultures and cities and towns and states and nations, clearly obvious, right, with recent events in the world and two major wars going on right now. He is in the business of restoring peace and shalom. Sometimes we can be tempted in evangelistic settings in discussion settings to maybe bring an argumentative spirit. And, you know, you see Jesus say here, like, your message is going to be one of judgment. 
he's very clear that judgment is coming in verses 13 through 16. And you might be tempted to think that with that comes kind of a critical, tough spirit. But Jesus says, as you go, you bring peace. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Peace. I was talking with Tony and Holly Freitas this week. Uh, back for, they're back from traveling somewhere in here. There they are. Hi, guys. They're uh, missionaries that we support with Reach Global, and they go around the world. And I think Tony was in Uganda. And Holly, where were you recently? Out and about? All over. Yeah, it's not worth it. Yeah, all over. Great. If you want to find out, talk to Holly afterwards. But I, 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 I read this passage this week, and it gave me thoughts about, I want to I see what Tony and Holly think of this passage. Because they travel, and they go, and they speak for Jesus in places around the world, different cultures, you know. They're sent out. We're all sent out, but they go a little further than most of us out from here. Uh, and, and it was fascinating how the thoughts they texted back to me this week, their experience as missionaries on the field lined up with this passage. It's really interesting. And it showed like, oh, Jesus gives really good advice. Huh, Who go figure, right? <laughs> Holly said she trained her kids when they were in the mission field to eat what they were given, um, deferring in some ways to cultural expectations of the house you're in. And Jesus said verse, those very things in verse 7. And Tony said, yeah, uh, Jesus is saying pack light here. And he said, if you, he said, early in ministry, I packed a little heavy and I lost my luggage a couple times. And you know what? The whole ministry was thrown off because I was so concerned with my stuff and packing and losing it. So now I think he travels pretty light with Um, carry-ons. Really interesting. But what I really loved was what Tony said of peace. And Holly agreed with it as she was texting back with me. Like Jesus said, if you find a son of peace... Speak to him. Invest there. Here's what Tony said. Tony's quoted today in the sermon with his name, Reach Global. The person of peace, Tony said, is usually the one who has the most influence in the community. So multiply yourself through that person. Because he's a person of peace, he will take what you've taught him and teach it to others. The person of peace can speak into the lives of his people better than we ever could do. He knows the culture and customs of his people, so focus your time and effort on him. He said, we use this in every place we work, as it truly makes our ministry sustainable and reproducible. Huh. How great to have a perspective of someone on the field to verify for us Jesus' words that find people of peace and put the word upon them and give it to them. I think in campus ministry, it used to be like, find the quarterback of the uh, the team, head cheerleader, get them saved, and you'll make an impact. But you know what? They might not be, probably not the most peaceful people on a campus. Jesus says, find the person of peace, and your message will rest on them. And I love how Tony and Holly back that up. Message of peace. I mean, the world is at war, literally, figuratively, spiritually. Let's be a people of peace wherever we go. It's good advice when we go into a foreign culture, but it's also really good as we take the gospel to our culture. I mean, who's really being changed through anger? Who's being converted by an angry argument? No one. No one. Jesus says, bring peace. Here's our fourth action item, in the way, and then we'll go on to the heart. The way, knowing the message, you've got to know the message, and there is something about proclaiming it boldly. In verses 9 through 16, 
Jesus makes it really clear what's at stake in the message. It did last week, too. He's talking heavily about judgment. He says, we're to proclaim forgiveness or judgment, acceptance or rejection, eternal life or eternal death. And the message he gives them, he doesn't really give them a really specific message. He hasn't died and risen yet. Maybe that's part of it. But it's really simple. He tells them, tell them the kingdom of God has come near. And attach that to good works as they were going out healing. Attach that to good deeds and loving deeds. that The kingdom is coming near. And I'll work through that. That's enough, he says. I'll work through that. And he says he can work through it because he's seen the reign and fall of Satan. Verse 18 points to that. This is not to say that everything associated with Jesus' authority and kingdom is now manifest. We say the kingdom is already here, but not yet. Something is coming greater when Jesus returns. So not everything is, is manifest, but the power to deliver sinners from death and defeat Satan, that's clear. That's here now, Jesus is saying. That is here. And as evangelists, Jesus has given us authority, verse 18 says, and even power over our enemy, Satan, as we, as we love others, as we share the message, as we attach that to good, loving deeds. But this is important. You have to know something of the message to be able to share it. Because truly the power doesn't reside in us, as the disciples are going to see in just another minute. We are not powerful. Jesus is powerful. And it is in his message of the gospel. That's what changes hearts. Romans 1, 16. Paul verifies that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first, and also to everyone else, the Greek. So to be a proclaimer of the message, you have to know it on some level to be able to explain as Jesus goes on, repentance is necessary or judgment will come. He lists all those towns that haven't repented and people. However passe the topic of sin and judgment becomes, it must still be the core of what we share, even if we contextualize it to make it more understandable to modern people today. That's okay, but we can't change the core truth. We don't get to choose the message because we're the messengers. We are not the message. Our life may adorn it, but the message is truly the historical life and death and work of Jesus. But you have to know something of the historical gospel. But it's not really that, it doesn't have to be that complex. Remember what Jesus said? Who is down here? These kids can believe it. They can understand it on some level. God, man, Christ response. God is holy, he made us. We are his. We are creatures. He made us in perfect relationship with him. God, what was next? Man, humanity. Humanity has sinned and done something that has separated us from that God and created a a divide, not only between human beings and God, but also on earth where there's just, it's not the way it's supposed to be. God, man, what was the next one? Christ. Jesus has done a work. He's come to earth. Talk about the cross. He came. There was a reason, a purpose behind it to pay for sin. He died and was buried again. It's a miracle. God, man, Christ. What was the fourth one? Amen. Response. Response. We respond. Humanity has to respond, right? We have to respond in repentance and faith. If you can keep that in your mind, that's something you can share. God, man, Christ response. And a little something to each of those words. You can tell that story. You can share the gospel. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It's just got to be truthful. Knowing the message and proclaiming it boldly. But you remember, we talked about back at the beginning, the number one message for not sharing was fear. So why can we proclaim it 
boldly. Look down at verse 16. We've got to see this before we jump to the second half. Uh, verse 16. The one who hears you hears me? That's pretty strong. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? The mission is his. He oversees it. It's his message. And if you speak it, you are inseparably linked to him. So that if they reject you, they're rejecting Jesus. Like we're that inseparably linked to him, vine and branches. If they don't hear you, they don't hear Jesus. That's, that's a really encouraging promise. When you speak the name of Jesus, he's saying like, it's as if I was speaking. We are that intimately united together as Lord and servant, as kingdom, as subject, as friend to friend, intimately connected. He says, we cannot separate the disciple from Jesus, in other words, is what he's saying. Much like an ambassador who goes out to represent his or her country, an ambassador goes out in a foreign land, we are ambassadors, This is the way Jesus says towards evangelism, prayer, humility, peace, and bold proclamation. Let's look at the heart, because if we just left it there, this message would be, um, I don't know, a little less than encouraging. It'd be just like a to-do list without any motivation. Here's the heart of evangelism. Did you notice Jesus gives them some action items, but he doesn't really give them a method necessarily for evangelism. He gives them action items and a way to go, but he doesn't really give them a method. And in this second section, they come back rejoicing that they displayed power over demons. The disciples were all worked up over the method. They were all worked up over the technique, what we're doing, what we're accomplishing. And Jesus, you know, he he kind of pours a little water on it. He says in verse 20, nevertheless, do do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but just rejoice that your names are written in heaven even. pretty interesting words that he says to them. When we think evangelism, we tend to think, and the church has tended to think in terms of activity and effort and achieving and commitment cards and notches on our belt and programs and techniques. And and you're right, we cannot be passive. Please don't hear me say that today. We cannot be passive in evangelism. But here's what Jesus wants us to see. He says, do you want to be somebody who goes in the way? Do you want to be someone committed to evangelism? And actually doing it, he says, then realize this is what he's getting at. The commitment to evangelism is more about being than achieving. We're going to unpack that. It's more about being who you are, who you be, who you are being as a person rather than achieving. Here's what this means. If you want to share your faith more, focus on being or becoming the type of person who can't help but share their faith. It's, it's a little counterintuitive. It's more about being than achieving. We can stress evangelism. We can overpower people with guilt and probably get some people to evangelize. But at the end of the day, if you're not just being, being the type of person Jesus wants us to be, evangelism will always be a chore, an add-on to your life rather than it just being a person who overflows with the gospel of grace. That's what Jesus is getting right here. Don't think about the technique that you have this power over. Just be a person that knows my name's in heaven. That's what he's telling them. 
They come back touting their success, and, and Jesus says, wait a minute, guys, you want to celebrate in power, in achievement. Don't let that be your primary joy. Why? Because, disciples, if you tie your joy to success, guess what? Didn't I already tell you rejection would come? Didn't I already tell you you're going to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves? It's not always going to look successful. So if you tie your joy to the demons were subject. If you tie your joy to the technique, oh, man, it's going to go up and down. When we're having good times, we'll be a joyful church. When it's not so good, we'll be miserable. He says you can't tie your joy to that. It's the same thing if you tie joy to success in any area of your life, job, family, career, even number of conversions. That can't be what we rejoice in, ultimately. No, Jesus says, just marvel that your name is even written in the book of heaven. He's saying, just marvel at grace. Just marvel at grace is what he's saying. Here's our kind of, this will help us get a little bit more. It's not about a method. It's about being a person of gospel-centered, grace-filled vision. It's just the type of person you be, you are, who you are, rather than just about achieving. Jesus is basically asking them, did you write your name there in that book? Did you write your name in that book of heaven? He says, "You, you didn't write your name there, did you? You're celebrating the technique and, yes, some authority and power I've given you. Yes, it's real, it's true, but did you write your name in heaven? That should be the thing that drives the going out, guys. Just be a gospel-filled person and you will overflow for me, saying find your joy there and you will be the type of person that doesn't have to think about achieving evangelism because it will just come as the natural overflow of a grace-filled heart. Do you see how it's more, it's more about being who you are than achieving? And the great thing is, if you become or be that type of person, you will overflow with the gospel. So, find your joy there. Your name is written in heaven. Take 30 seconds and just meditate on that. You can close your eyes if you need to. My name is like there in the throne room somehow, whether it's a real book or just the presence of Jesus interceding for you. Take 30 seconds. Maybe it's connected to the scars in his hands. Somehow your name with him written in his hands. You know, if we want to see evangelism, there's nothing wrong with uh, evangelism class or training as a supplement. Those are really important things. But do we want to see pebbles turn into an avalanche? Prayer and gospel, prayer and gospel, prayer and gospel over and over and over again. That's the heart of this passage. The law of Jesus, or what we call it the law of evangelism, if I just stopped at the first part, go do, here's how you go and do. That never warmed a Christian's heart or transformed a disciple's heart into somebody that truly overflows with the gospel. The law never produces true obedience even. It's inside out, isn't it? Be the type of person from the inside out and you will evangelize. And what does it? Love. Love. And Luke wants us to understand this love of God by highlighting us in the last few verses 
Grace. This gospel-centered, grace-filled vision and being the type of person with what he writes next. He expounds even more on the sovereign grace of God. It is his will to do with his grace, his message, his gospel, and dispense it as he pleases of having your name written in heaven. It's our final subpoint here that Jesus gets at in these last verses. All authority and spiritual vision and understanding of the gospel is from Jesus. The final verses of this passage, they can be troubling to some. As we hear Jesus' words, as we look at kind of the hard things he says, it could be considered one of the hard sayings of Jesus. There's a lot of those in the Bible. Jesus said a lot of hard things. But we don't get to choose what we rejoice in. We, 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 we want to rejoice in what Jesus rejoices in. We don't get to choose that. And Jesus begins to rejoice as he says, your joy. And you see how Luke just switched in verse uh, 21. Now he rejoiced. So here's your model. Here's something for us to follow. Look at verse 21. He highlights in that same hour, he now rejoiced. So here's how you rejoice. Your name's in heaven, people, my disciples. Now he goes and rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will. There it is. He's, he's highlighting grace. Jesus says it was the Father's grace. It's his gracious will to do this thing, to reveal himself to those who are like little children, who are not proudful. It was the Father's grace. It was his gracious will, Jesus says. And that's what makes Jesus happy, grace. But here's what Jesus is also saying. And it is hard. God doesn't owe anyone a revelation of himself. He doesn't owe it to anyone. That's what grace is. It's undeserved favor. And yet he says here, there are some you haven't revealed yourself to. Wise and the proud, those on top of life. No, you've you've chosen to reveal yourself to people like this, people that I had like sitting here in front of us today. That was what your will is. And that makes me happy, Jesus says, that grace is shining on the earth. And God is and would be perfectly just if he was to say, I will reveal myself to this person and that person, whatever his sovereign purpose might be. He doesn't, remember, owe a revelation of himself to anyone. That is what these verses are saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, the message is available to all. And he's revealed himself in creation. And the word of God is available to all. And the more people we speak it to, we'll hear it, correct? Right? We would agree with that. The more people that we speak it to. Revealed to all in Jesus and the word. But Jesus is getting at something more here as he finishes up with an internal Revelation, eyes, ears, we're going to see to close. Jesus says in verse 22, it's my authority, Jesus says, it's my authority, it's my prerogative to reveal myself to whoever I choose to reveal myself to. That's kind of the hard thing Jesus says. It's my authority. In verse 23, he goes back to the disciples, you are blessed. Here's what should make you joyful. He says, you are blessed. You want to be the type of person as I send you out. You have eyes that have seen. You have ears that hear. And it revealed something on the inside. You know something internal 
You are blessed, he says, because your eyes see and your ears hear what others have longed to see and hear. And you didn't open those eyes and ears, Jesus is saying. I did. I opened those eyes and ears. Luke is wanting us to see and hear that we only see and hear and believe because Jesus in his sovereign choices, he says, I choose who I reveal myself to. And guess what, disciples? You see and hear, don't you? And I'm rejoicing in this, so you rejoice in this. However all the details of that work out. It's as if God's fingers opened your eyelids and gave you sight is what Jesus is saying. It's as if God's own hand took off the scales and glaucoma off your eyes so you could see him and opened your ears and got all that wax out. I have waxy ears. I got to clean them out every once in a while. Any of you guys have that? It's an oversharing revelation by the preacher today. But, I mean, that's what the Lord does. He cleans out your ears so you can hear him. That's what Jesus is saying. I reveal to whoever I want to reveal to. There is mystery there. But he opens our ears. That's grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. Was what? Blind, but now I see. It's grace. It's grace that produces evangelists. This is grace. Even our understanding of truth was revealed to us. It's being rather than achieving, even in your own salvation. If you see Jesus through faith, he's saying, you ought to rejoice because Jesus was doing it with the Father. Thank you that you revealed yourself to certain type of people and not others, and I choose to who I'm going to reveal myself to, and I've done it to you. So, hey, be happy. Be blessed. Be joyful. That'll be the thing that propels, propels evangelism much more than a, full, uh, a, a program. It's a fuller understanding of grace. And when it's combined with prayer, it turns pebbles into an avalanche. Can we pray for an avalanche? We can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.